Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. It's time for school, Rock School, with your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. They all said that Warren looked at life, and I think Jordan says it beautifully, you know, look at that beautiful flower growing out of the cracks in the sidewalk. That he could always find something redeeming in the horrible, horrible parts of life. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show here on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns. Tammy, once again, is taking the week off because we are still in the middle of Joe's book club. I had the good fortune over the summer of a good number of publishers contacting me and saying, would you be interested in reading and then interviewing the authors of these books? And I said, of course. Today, we're talking with James Campion. If that rings a bell, it's because about a year, year and a half ago, we talked to him about his last book. He's got a new one. It's called Accidentally Like a Martyr, The Tortured Art of Warren Zevon. Now, if you say, well, I'm not a big Warren Zevon fan, neither was I before the book. And now I'm listening to the guy on loop. And we're going to talk to James Campion today and see if we can't turn you into a Warren Zevon fan. And if it piques your interest at all, I urge you to grab the book and read it. It really is well put together. Once again, Accidentally Like a Martyr, The Tortured Art of Warren Zevon. And as I'm starting to do with interviews, if you'd like to hear the entire unedited interview, I chop it up, obviously, to meet time for this radio show slash podcast. But if you'd like to hear the entire thing, go to the Rock School website. That's at southeastern.edu slash rock school southeastern.edu slash rock school that'll get you right there also one more thing james asked me that when you're done listening to my podcast that you listen to his he's got one called underwater sunshine which he does with adam duritz and the quickest way to get to it is countingcrows.com you knew that from the name didn't you countingcrows.com slash podcast once again Accidentally, Like a Martyr, The Tortured Art of Warren Zevon. James Campion for an hour on Rock School. On the phone with me right now, James Campion, the author of a brand new book titled Accidentally, Like a Martyr, The Tortured Art of Warren Zevon. James, I think this is the second time you've spoken to me. Yes, thank you very much for having me back, Professor Burns. This was a a real thrill for me the first time uh, Backbeat Books booked me on your podcast or show here and i was I, I came away thinking to myself and i think you said hey come back when you asked me what i was working on i said this warren zevon book you said come on back we'll talk about warren zevon it stuck in the back of my head and of all the interviews i did i think this is the one where we really got to the bottom of what i was doing with shouted out loud and i really look forward to discussing my new book with you well let's do just that i gotta tell you right up front when i received the book I'm not, or I was not, a fan of Warren Zevon, but now, James, I'm listening to him on a loop. Why a book on Zevon, of all people? Well, first of all, that's the best compliment you could give me, 
And I think you just answered your own question. Mm. I wrote the book because I looked around and I started to notice, hey, why aren't there more Warren Zevon fans? I wrote this, this uh, series of poems, for lack of a better term, which I think I referenced in the introduction of my book called Chaos in Motion in College, low these many years ago. Mm-hmm. And I used to put these one or two liners, like uh, not like haikus, but these little, I try to think of little pithy uh, axioms and such. And one of the things I just wrote there, it always stuck with me, why don't... More people should listen to Warren Zevon, <laughs> and this is back in the early 80s, you know, and then as years went by, uh, Warren, you know, sort of became this cult figure. I saw him play a dozen times just by himself or with Timothy B. Schmidt from the Eagles or just with a trio uh, in clubs and small venues in the early and late 90s and uh, and into the early aughts. Uh, he passed away in 2003. And his, his um, ex-wife, Crystal, who I interviewed for the book, she had an oral biography called I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, The Dirty Life and Times of Warren Zevon. Mm-hmm. And a good friend of mine, another professor, Professor George Plaskides from Auburn University, wrote a legitimate biography. Not that mine's not, but we'll get into the specifics <laughs> of mine in a moment. But <laughs> other than that, there really hasn't been anything on Warren. And, and I, I talk to a lot of people. I'm like, yeah, you know, how about this song? That's, I don't know who wrote that. Oh, you know, I'd say Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me or Werewolves of London. Oh, I know that song, Warren Zevon. So really, the motivation for me was I love Warren's work, and I find that the two or three people or maybe six or seven people over the last 25 years that I've met that really love him, we have this special bond. And I thought, why not share that with more people, and especially musical people such as yourself, who I think really should know about his work. So really, the motivation was, why not? There's no other book like it. I was staring in my empty coffee cup I was thinking that the gypsy wasn't blind All the salty margaritas in Los Angeles I'm gonna drink them up And if California slides into the ocean Like the mystics and statistics say it will predict this motel will be standing until I pay my bill. This, this artist that, you know, like most people, I mean, I knew Werewolves of London, you know, and I knew Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me, but I knew it through the, um, I knew it through the Linda Ronstadt version. But right, me too. speaking of music, again, I told you I've been listening to him on a loop. I work at a radio station. I can download any music that I want. Of all the songs to title it, Accidentally Like a Martyr, it, don't get me wrong, it's a good song. But it's not one of his stronger ones. What What is the title to say to a reader? Well, another great question. Um, the The subtitle is the one that really was a sticking point for Backbeat Books. A couple of them, uh, you know, uh, the people that work there, my editor Bernadette Malavaca, who's uh, is my second book working with Bernadette. Do you have to use tortured? The tortured art of Warren Zevon. Tortured. It's a little. 
and I didn't realize it until afterwards that what they were saying is it's sort of a, this meme, this sort of this uh, trope that people use all the time, the tortured artist. But I wasn't saying that. What I was saying is that Warren, in both his life and his work, was very tortured. When he went to write, sometimes he would spend a year painting over a stanza or a chorus. He, some, he said he wrestled with, with putting a bridge in a song until he finally gave up and said, I'm not even going to put a bridge in this song. <laughs> uh, he would spend weeks over one line, a specific word. He was very literate, very well read. So, uh, you know, he, he knew a lot about film and, and culture. So he was always trying to mine those things to put in his songs. So that sort of tortured him. He didn't just wake up one day and go, yeah, I got a melody. I'm just going to write this, throw some words in about love and cars, and we're good to go. That's number one. Number two, the accidentally like a martyr actually depicts, and if you read the book, you probably say, mm, I get it, and maybe mm -hmm. you're leading me down that path. Right. But he, he, he was very much into fate and luck, bad luck and good luck. You know, a, a certain jacket he would wear, a certain car he would drive, a certain color that he would wear or, or a certain color of his hair, a certain soda that he would drink. He had a, he was later on, obviously, uh, diagnosed with OCD, but in the early days, it was considered a funny quirk in which he really believed that everything kind of happened to you, you know, completely out of your control. I always was fascinated by the idea of how does one become a martyr accidentally? <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, oh my God, how did this happen? Oh, you know, Che Guevara or you know anyone. Uh, and you think, well, obviously that doesn't just happen by accident. It's a series of events that lead to it. But Warren really did believe that things just kind of happened to him, um, except for apparently songwriting, but um, which he pained over. So I was always fascinated by that title, Accidentally Like a Martyr, and it kept coming back to me when I was writing the book about how Warren was, you know, he was funny, because Accidentally Like a Martyr is funny. He was also dark. It's kind of dark. And he was also, in many ways, crippled by this idea that things just befall us, no matter our best laid plans, no matter what we do, how smart we are, how well we take care of ourselves, how cool we think we are, the poop is going to hit the fan, and right. I don't know how I'm going to be able to survive it. So I thought that did speak to the, uh, to the overall series of essays that I, I included in sun refused to shine Never thought I'd have to pay so dearly for what was already mine For such a long long time We made mad love Shadow love Random love And abandoned love Right, and I, I learned because you wrote the narrative of this book around songs and lyrics. You sort of threw up a stanza and then from that went the story, which is which is very clever. And when I read about Poor Poor Pitiful Me, like you said, and I am leading you down the path, I went and immediately listened to his version rather than the Linda Ronstadt version. And what I found was, I, you know, I like Steely Dan and some other things. He seemed to love the Charlie Brown character. 
the the lovable loser was was that him is that the reason or did he just find life in that uh i think it's both you know i i i I, in fact i know it's both because i spoke to uh his family his son jordan who is a huge part of this whole endeavor uh he bequeathed me the rights uh gratis for something like 42 songs and and one when the uh Warren Zevon estate could not provide me that he um, he showed me the publishing companies that 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 did own it uh, the co-writers that all work with him that own parts of the rights and by the way they were all fabulous they all got back to me they all said please uh, go ahead and do it because um, they all love Warren uh, but there's you know they all said that Warren looked at life and I think Jordan says it beautifully you know look at that beautiful flower growing out of the cracks in the sidewalk that he could always find something redeeming in the horrible, horrible parts of life, or just, it's not horrible, the broken parts, uh, hence the cracked sidewalk. And he also saw life as very fragile. And I do believe that the key element, the underlying subtext or themes to a lot of Warren's songs is Charlie Brown trying to kick that ball and Lucy keeps you know, lifting it up. And, I, and, I, and, and great job by you, Joseph, because I probably should use that as one of the metaphors, because he does talk about it specifically in my essay on Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me. He has a bevy of songs, two or three per record, over a 10, 11 record uh, career, in which he talks about the femme fatale, the woman that comes into his life and upsets everything, upsets the complete apple cart. You know, what happened? I was perfectly fine sitting here, and then this woman, this gorgeous, dark woman comes in and wrecks the joint. You know, like Dashiell Hammett or Raymond Chandler, these great writers, these noir writers. Right. Uh, I, 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 I made sure that the book cover was in black and white. All the photos are in black and white. That was Warren. He lived in this black and white drama. So, yeah, I think he did believe in the lovable loser. I think he felt like sometimes things happen to you that's outside of your... Uh, control, as I said earlier, and I think he also saw the beauty he gave sympathy to and humanity to a lot of damaged characters, in which a lot of songwriters from his period and his, you know, the L.A. sound, the Jackson Browns, who produced his first couple of records and was close to him, the Don Henleys and, and, and the Eagles, Glenn Fry, who sang on these records, um, Linda Ronstadt, who covered his songs, J.D. Souther, who wrote songs with him, um, and the list is long, you know, Neil Young and all these guys who are all contemporaries of him, they, they tended to write about either personal angst or they wrote about love and peace and, and, and expression. And Warren said, how come I have to write about these things? Why can't I do something like Steven Spielberg and make a movie about a shark? Why can't I do like Raymond Chandler and write something about, you know, a detective in L.A.? He wanted to write short stories. He wanted to write like novels. He, he based a lot of his work on as I said, Hammett or Chandler or Norman Mailer, great influence on him. So as a writer, you come to Warren and you see that. And, he, and, and, he, and I think it's laudable uh, as a writer that he takes these flawed characters, these damaged people, and he gives them that lovable loser. You want to love them and hug them and make it okay when you hear those songs. We need to take our first break uh, as we talk to James Campion here on the Rock School Radio Show about Accidentally Like a Martyr, the tortured art of Warren Zevon. And once again, if you'd like to hear the entire unedited version of the interview, please go to the Rock School website, southeastern.edu slash rockschool. Back in a minute here on Rock School. Rock School. 
Hey, Rock School listener, you hear this little thing going on right now? This this music bed that goes on for a minute? We do it twice during the show. This is where a sponsor should be. This is where an underwriter should be. If you or some business you know might want to be that sponsor or underwriter of the Rock School radio show, please have that person give us a call, 985-549-2330. Once again, 985-549-2330. You can sponsor the radio show, you can sponsor the podcast, you can sponsor both. There's other ways of doing it. So call that number, 985-549-2330, and talk with Rachel, or talk to Todd if you really want to talk to Todd for some reason, but Rachel's really who you want to speak to. 549-2330. Thanks. I was going to say, to start this next little section off, I'm afraid I got to tell you, and I'm sure you know this, the restaurant Li Ho Fook does not exist anymore. Yeah, it did. It closed. Yeah, you yeah. cannot get a beef, a dish of uh, beef chow mein. For, <laughs> for those who are uh, not quite knowledgeable about it, Werewolves of London mentions Li Ho Fook. Now, here's that tortured artist thing. Look, it's music. you got to make money. You have got to, you know, if not have a hit, you have to sell things. And like, and I've heard this story so many times, the hit is the song that the artist dislikes, that the artist said, ah, it'll never work. And the songs that he likes never actually make the hits. I mean, is, I got that from the book. Am I, am I saying it correctly? Yeah, yeah. No, that happens a lot. I mean, I, I used Randy Newman's short people in Werewolves of London that, that, that became the biggest hits for both Randy Newman and Warren Zevon, two of my favorite songwriters, two eclectic songwriters, two dark songwriters, songwriters who take on um, the, uh, you know, the untrustworthy narrator form in which back in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, when the songwriter period came, people expected the songwriter to bear the soul, to talk about his life, the Jim Croce's the James Taylors, the Jackson Browns, the Neil Youngs, to bring Joni Mitchells, uh, to bring in parts of their lives, to bear their souls. Bob Dylan's, you know, uh, Blood on the Tracks, Joni Mitchell's Blue, uh, Jackson Brown's The Pretender. These are, these are confessional records. Although Warren does have confessionals and you find out his life in his songs, he also inhabits maniacs, murderers, uh, uh, gangsters, uh, rogues, uh, criminals, uh, the demi mom. He's 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 going inside and he's finding out. Like I said, the humanity in all these uh, in all these characters and bringing them into the songs. Werewolves of London is funny and it, it, it's funny on many levels. But the main aspect of it is that what I just said about his torturing himself over lines and 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 chords and for weeks and months and year that it, that whole song took about eight minutes to write yeah. at best. <laughs> It was three guys, Leroy Marinell, who passed away during the writing of this book. I miss Leroy very much. Um, uh, Warren and the great Wally Wachtel, who has been uh, also a great friend of the book. He gave me great interviews. I thought his, his remembrances were, really sparked the book. And, uh, and he's had a lot of nice things to say about it. Uh, those three guys just happened to me in a room, gro- grooving, smoking, drinking. And luckily for, for, for Warren, Crystal Zivon, who I also interviewed, who's in the room, you know, ran a tape and took some notes because none of them remembered any of it. They're just yelling out all these lines and now, and they just went for it and, and went on to play something else. And, you know, again, if it wasn't for Crystal, the next day she said to Jackson while he was working on the first record, 
Of course, Werewolves of London ends up on Warren's second record, Excitable Boy. She says, Help, you got to tell Jackson about this new song. What song? <laughs> you know <laughs> and about so it. And <laughs> so the what song becomes Werewolves of London, which becomes his biggest hit. And the one thing, as I said, when I worked on this book for two and a half years, what are you working on, Warren Zevon? What the hell's that? You know Werewolves of London? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that guy. So, you know, it's what he's known for. It's played every Halloween, it's played in movies. Uh, Scorsese, his good friend, brought it back for Color and Money in the 80s. So there was a lot of werewolves throughout Warren's career. And to his credit, even though him and Waddy were shocked and dismayed that, that Electra Asylum wanted to make it a single, he never bristled at it ever. He never, ever said, I don't want to play Werewolves in London. He always said, I consider my audience to be the customer's. And if a person gets in his car and drives two hours or an hour or even 15 minutes or takes a subway ride and waits for an hour as the opening band plays to hear me play, and I don't play Werewolves of London, what right do I have to not do that? I oh, mean, seriously. I agree and with that's, that you know, so much. To everyone, you know, and so he always embraced Werewolves of London. And, well, he should because I know it's a kitschy song and it's a lot of fun, but it's brilliantly done. Uh, half of Fleetwood Mac plays on it. Waddy Wachtel's lead in that song is one of the best leads in a rock and roll song. And you're a guitar player, so you know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's just a great song, so let's give it that. I saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand Walking through the streets of Soho in the rain the place called Lee Ho Fuchs Gonna get a big dish of beef chow mein in the book or likened in the book the passing of the torch from Guthrie to Dylan as an equivalent of the passing of the torch from Warren Zevon to Bruce Springsteen before your book I had never heard of Zevon to Springsteen I had never known they even knew each other please relate that to us how do they go together yeah well at that point I was, I was trying to make the point that that um, Bruce sort of that torch, that pressure was always on Springsteen, you mm -hmm. know? Hammond, uh, uh, you know, it, the, brought him into Columbia the way he did with Dylan the generation earlier. There was too much pressure. Warren never had that kind of pressure. He was sort of an outsider guy, and again, he didn't quite fit into the L.A. scene. Springsteen was an East Coast guy, uh, you know, small-town guy that made his way to the big city to write long arias about his generation. Um, Warren's connection to Bruce is weird, like every connection that Warren had, uh, like the Jackson Brown. It was a happenstance. Uh, Warren was, was touring um, Excitable Boy, and Springsteen, you know, it was a big buzz in the music business. Springsteen caught a show of his in New York, and it was a double bill show. It was a double, it was a uh, two-set show. So the band played, and they took a break and came, they were supposed to come back 45 minutes later. David Landau and Waddy Wachtel, who were the, the guitar players for that touring band, both told me 
Warren never showed up. We didn't know where he was. And this is before, you know, uh, cell phones or anything. So I had no idea where he was. It turns out he was out with the Clancy brothers drinking in the East Village. <laughs> he finally gets back and he's hammered. And he gets on stage and he starts singing. And for some weird reason, and Bruce was never a drinker or anything, I, he just found it amusingly brilliant. Let's say yeah. it that way. And the reason why I know that is David Landau, whose brother John Landau is, has been uh, and wrote that famous piece uh, at the beginning of Bruce's career, how I've seen the future of rock and roll, and it's Bruce Springsteen became his manager, was there that night as well. Somehow, David, though, ends up in a limo with Warren and Bruce, and they spend the whole night talking until the dawn. And I think David says something to the effect of, I, I consider myself a pretty smart guy, and I'm a, great, I'm a, a very accomplished musician, but I had zero idea what either one of those guys were talking about. They, they all of a sudden entered this weird sort of connection, like he had with Jackson, where they could they just took off. And from that point forward, Bruce was a huge fan of Warren. And like everybody who became more popular than Warren, always had a kinship with him and feeling, this guy needs to be more popular. I wish he was. And Bruce ended up giving a title that, that Warren loved called Jamie Needs a Shooter to him. And the two of them wrote a song called Jamie Needs a Shooter. And um, and it's one of the great Warren Zevon songs, beautiful string arrangement by, by Warren. It's on uh, Bad Luck Streak in Dancing School, Warren's third album. And from that point forward, Bruce would always want to know what Warren was doing, and, and Warren always played Bruce songs like Cadillac Ranch and his sets. And um, when Warren was dying, uh, Bruce was one of the guys who played on the wind and sang on it. He was in the middle of a tour. He had a Christmas vacation. And you know when you do these tours, maybe you get four days off, five days off. And... Um, he spent the entire time with Warren, and that was the last time he saw him alive. But uh, they, again, this amazing connection and love that these two uh, great American songwriters have. And in that chat, in that essay that I write about it, I ended up, I think it was for my rides here, that, that the night after Warren passed, Springsteen opened his set <clears throat> in Canada with uh, my rides here, which... Hmm. It's just a wonderful song about the afterlife, even though it's joking. This is before Warren thought he was dying. But yeah. Warren wrote about death a lot, so that, that was not surprising. And his version of it just floored everybody who knew him. And Jorge Calderon, one of his longest friends, uh, you know, his tightest friend, and wrote 16 songs with him or something like that and worked on the wind, said to this day he can't even listen to it. It's just so right on. It's so Warren. And it's like Bruce was channeling him. So when you talk about these connections that Warren had to these other great musicians... They're not just passing. They're not just, hey, I hung out with this guy, or, you know, this musician slept with that guy, guy or, or, or woman, or, or they, you know, this guy sang on that guy's record. No, no, no. Once someone got in contact with Warren, it was a deep-seated connection. Sometimes it ended badly, but it was not flippant. It wasn't passing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, it, it was always deep. I was born down by the river where the dirty water flows and the cold wind cut through me. It cut right through my clothes And the anger and the yearning Like fever in my veins Set the fire burning She came down from Knightstown With her hands hard from the line From the first time I laid eyes on her I knew that she'd be mine Her father was a lawman He swore it shoot me dead Cause he knew I wanted Jeannie And I'd had fighting hard to meet her When a shot rang out behind As I lay there in the darkness With a pistol by my side Jeannie and her father Rode off into the night 
In the book, you quote uh, Warren Zevon by stating that an artist, if he was by himself on a deserted island, he would still write. And if that's not you, you're not an artist. I believe that. Do you? I do. I do. I, Hunter Thompson, my favorite writer, did say something that I kind of, and it's easy for me to say because I've been published and I've worked very hard professionally in writing for you know, 30 years now. Um, but I, I think unless someone buys your work, it's hard to call yourself a working artist. Uh, I know a lot of really close friends of mine who are brilliant artists, great musicians, fantastic writers or painters, and they don't, their stuff's not hanging in a museum or no one's buying them on Etsy or whatever is happening. They're not on Amazon or in a bookstore or in a record store, but doesn't make them any less artists. I think what Warren was saying there, and it's very true, your motivation has to be to create something. Mm-hmm. This, this constant gnawing to make something, and then eventually that thing will become something. I'm reading Carly Simon's memoir just now, Boys in the Trees, and she talks about James Taylor writing. And she said, I watched James Taylor write songs, great songs that never made it on a record. He worked on it really, and they said, no, 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 it doesn't fit. But he needed to write it. He needed to finish it for himself, for the world, for his kids, for whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the way Warren felt about art and creating. And I think uh, that's true. And at the end of his career, the last three or four albums in which he recorded entirely at home, because record companies just weren't giving him a budget to go to studios or to hire musicians, he understood I still want to get this stuff out. How do I do it? How do I create? And he just kept doing it, despite all the odds. And I, and I respect him for that. Time to take the second break here on the Rock School Radio Show. Give our affiliates a chance to plop in their commercials. I want to remind you that our guest today, James Campion, has a podcast of his own with Adam Duritz. It's called Underwater Sunshine. Quickest way to get to it, countingcrows.com slash podcast. Back in a minute here on Rock School. Hey, Rock School listener, you hear this little thing going on right now, this this music bed that goes on for a minute, we do it twice during the show? This is where a sponsor should be. This is where an underwriter should be. If you or some business you know might want to be that sponsor or underwriter of the Rock School Radio Show, please have that person give us a call, 985-549-2330. Once again, 985-549-2330. You can sponsor the radio show, you can sponsor the podcast, you can sponsor both. There's other ways of doing it. So call that number, 985-549-2330, and talk with Rachel. Or you can talk to Todd if you really want to talk to Todd for some reason. But Rachel's really who you want to speak to. 549-2330. Thanks. You, you mentioned it, and we have to go there because it is a big part of the book. And I, I really enjoyed that when you discussed the death, we weren't at the end of the book. It continued follow, but following... But I need to ask you, tell me about the learning of the impending death of one of your heroes. I, I believe it came through an interview. Am I right? Yeah. Um, so I had never, one of my, you know, I, I don't really ever talk about regrets. You live your life, you go, you know, you, you make your decisions and you go from there. You know, there's a few things you wish you could do over or little things that you wish you could have maybe not been so reticent to jump into when a window opens. Um, never had a chance 
to meet Warren, um, despite working uh, for, and I'm a contributing editor for the Aquarian Weekly and have been since 1997, so Warren was still alive then, certainly, and saw him play, like I said, about a dozen times. Um, but I did go, and I write about it in the book, in, in the year 2000, a couple, just a couple of months, maybe only a month after my, my father-in-law passed, and I went with my wife, who was becoming a Warren Zevon fan, and we went to go see him play in some club in Rochester, New York, during a snowstorm. And we were right up against the stage that night. But before he went on, we were standing by the bar, and he came over to order. I remember it was a club soda, so he wasn't drinking. <laughs> and he ordered a club soda, and he was standing, you know, maybe four feet from us. And I'm just not that guy, you know. I should have been that guy. I should have said, you know, in hindsight, if you know you're never going to meet him, you know, ever, or he's going to die at 56 years old, you might want to tap him on the shoulder and say, thanks, man, for all the music, and I'm a big fan. I mean, obviously anyone is showing up on a Thursday night in Rochester in a snowstorm is a fan of Warren Zevon. He didn't need to hear that. But it would have been something I would have loved to do. So I was that close. Fast forward to 2002, and his record comes out, My Rides Here, his, his penultimate record, and um, I get credentials to interview him. And they say, okay, uh, we're going you know, to call you. And that's how those things go unless you go to beat the guy in his hotel room or something. They normally call you on the phone and like you did with me today for the interview, and they say, you know, be here at a certain time, you have 15, 20 minutes, and ask him about the record. So I was all ready, I had all my notes ready to go. About two or three days before my interview, I got a call from his publicist, which really never happens. They usually call you that day, and that's the end of it. And I could tell by the way she was talking to me that it was very dire, but she just said, due to personal reasons, Warren won't be able to make the interview, uh, we don't have any time to reschedule, we don't know what the reschedule is going to be, so we'll get back to you. But the way she said we'll get back to you is almost, like I said, very foreboding. And it wasn't until about maybe, it wasn't long, maybe four, this is in September of 20, 2002, maybe 48 hours later, I read online in the LA Times that he had inoperable lung cancer. Mm. And at that point, and I write about it very extensively in the book, he kind of just shut it down. Didn't do hardly, and I think he did one interview with Time, one interview with Rolling Stone, and he did the Letterman show. But he had just basically shut down all interviews, any media. And his thinking was, hey, where were these people before <laughs> I yeah. was dying? You know? and, yeah. so, uh, and, I, and, I, and so that's how close I came to interviewing Warren. And that's how I found out that he was dying. And I, I tried to use the postscript to the book, all the people I interviewed in the book, and I thanked them all, uh, family, contributors, musicians who played with him on, on the road, people who took care of him on the road, uh, personal managers, ex-wives, children. They were fat, fabulous. I want to thank them all publicly once again for, for, for you know, contributing to my work. Uh, I gave them all each a final statement on what they want you guys to know, the readers, about the Warren they knew, because there were so many different Warrens, you know, so many different. He was one of the more mercurial characters I've ever written about or studied. And um, I was very proud to get that at the end of the book. So, so the book doesn't just end with, with Warren dying after the wind comes out. He wins two Grammys posthumously, but, um, and it was his, turned out to be his third uh, highest-selling record. Um, but but these, these memories, these remembrances, these little snippets into the, into the personal life and what uh, Warren meant to them, I think, was, is a great way to end the book. I was staying in the Marriott with Jesus and John Wayne. I was waiting for a chariot. They were waiting for a train And the sky was full of carrion I'll take the Mazuma Sent Jesus to Marion That's the pretender you My ride's here
changeless We galloped through blue bonnets I was wrestling with an angel You were working on a sonnet You said I believe the seraphim Will gather It's September 7th, 2003. We're on Zevon Passes. We're now 15 years out. I know a lot of students, and I know a younger generation may hear this. It's got to be more than Werewolves of London on an 80s all-star weekend on W What the Heck. Explain Warren Zevon to the generation that has never heard him. Well, Taylor Goldsmith said it well. Uh, Taylor, I think, is in his early 30s now, um, so he's not 20-something. He said to me, the great thing about this generation is we're losing touch with irony and sarcasm, satire. We're we're building safe zones, and and we're becoming overly politically correct in some ways. And I'm not one of those people who are anti, you know, I don't think you should be able to say anything. And I I know that there's been a terrible way of referring to Native Americans and African Americans and women and all the different groups uh, through the years. And I am not saying that everyone should have a pass on that because, you know, A or B, and I'm not trying to be political here, but I think what Taylor was saying is that Warren has a lot to show us about every side of the human experience. We don't shut it off. I describe him in the book as an unblinking artist. He never blinked first. He'd stare down the subject he wrote about and he let it come through completely. The Springsteen, in the, in the, in the bit, I believe in The Indifference in Heaven, where I bring in The Indifference of Heaven, which is a brilliant song off of his record, Mutineer, um, that I heard for the first time live when he played it a couple of years before he put it on the record. Uh, which has so much subtext to it. There's a, there's a it, it, part of the song is, is written about the, the L.A. riots, the Rodney King riots. Warren lived down there during it. I mean, his house was almost burned to the ground, hmm. his apartment. And he writes in there, you know, they say everything uh, will be fine. I, I'm paraphrasing. They say the good times are, 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 are near, uh, or the, the, the good times are soon to come, or whatever the heck it is. But the, the key line there is, but they don't live around here. Bruce and Patty don't. Billy and Christy don't. You know, Christy, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the model. And right. for him to be able to bring Bruce Springsteen in, a man of the people, a guy who spent his life on political causes, who, who wrote songs, opuses, about the working man, whose father was a working man, who came from a working class, who dresses like working class. I'm not saying Bruce is putting that on at all, but Warren actually used him as an example of a vacuous rock star who comes up with axioms and has no idea what's going on in this burning neighborhood right hmm. now. Warren went there, and he kept going there. And there was a, uh, Jackson Brown said he would keep going until this immutable truth came out of the situation. At least his truth, how he saw it. I think a generation of kids coming up now, listening to music, I know their artists do that too, and I'm not saying Warren is just unique in that sense. But I think it's important 
to listen to him because he didn't walk the line everyone else did. You're inundated with the Eagles. You're inundated with Fleetwood Mac. You're inundated with Crosby, Stills, and even to this day. And these songs are 40, 50 years old. But with Warren, he never walked there. He always stayed on the fringe. Yeah. I think it's important that we understand the fringes, especially from artists, because those are the people I want to know about. I want to go to places that I wouldn't visit even. You know the old saying, I, it's a nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. Right. Warren wrote about places you don't even want to visit. Hmm. But I think it's important that you hear them, and he did it in such a gorgeous way. The French Inhaler is a, is a vitriotic, hateful piece about the mother of his firstborn uh, son, Jordan, who I interviewed extensively for the book. Yeah. And he said he remembers his mother sitting with a glass of wine and listening to that song once a week. Like on a Friday, she put the first Warren Zevon Asylum record on and listened to this song that Warren is just eviscerating her. But she's like, but it's just so gorgeous. It's yeah. so heartfelt and beautiful. She ignored everything in it, but she understood the pain they caused each other, but the way Warren couched it. That's a rare, rare thing in life, and I think I don't care what generation you are. Embrace that. Yeah. I think that's what I would tell another generation. I'll buy that. Everybody's restless. And they got no place to go Someone's always trying to tell them Something they already know So their anger and resentment flow But don't it make you want to drop a The name of the book is Accidentally Like a Martyr, The Tortured Art of Warren Zevon by James Campion. James, it's another home run. It's an excellent, excellent book, and it should be read. Thank you for writing it. Thank you so much for reading it, for having me on. I hope your students enjoy it. Uh, and I, I think someday, uh, if I ever get out your way, I'd love to come visit and, and speak about music with the kids and and get to see you, meet you finally. But, uh, yeah, this has been a thrill. Uh, both books, working on one now, so hopefully when that's done and out, I'll, uh, I'll, um, we can meet up again and, and chat about it. It's always great talking to you, Professor. All you have to do is call, and, and you're in the classroom or you're on the radio, <laughs> one of the two. James, thank you Thanks, so much. Bro. You got it, buddy. Shadows are falling, and I'm running out of breath. Keep me in your heart for a while. If I leave you, it doesn't mean I love you any less Keep me in your heart for a while When you get up in the morning And you see that crazy sun Keep me in your heart for a while There's a train leaving nightly called When all is said and done Keep me in your heart for a while Shine